In this very room There's quite enough love For all the world And in this very room There's quite enough joy For all the world And there's quite enough love And quite enough power To walk through our every fear For spirit One spirit Is in this very room In this very room And so I invite you to join me in a, a powerful and deep and present moment experience, a sacred covenant. And so what I invite myself to do is to be mindful of my heart, not only my thoughts, but moving my energy down into my heart, breathing from my heart, and moving that energy with the next breath down into my core. As we breathe together in this moment, we presence something, that, that essence, that true essence of self calling it forth, allowing it to be revealed, quieting our minds, relaxing our physical body, allowing ourselves to feel whatever bubbles up, moving that energy down into the earth through the bottoms of our feet, or whatever metaphor works for you, but knowing that we are grounded completely and powerfully in this moment. And so I affirm and know on behalf of each person here as well as myself that I recognize this vibrational frequency of love this principle of life that says yes to every thought that you and I have. And what a blessing to know that things do not happen instantaneously because many of the thoughts I have, I don't necessarily want to see show up in my life. So let us know that it takes time to nurture, develop, and invite a consciousness of a new idea, the newness that is seeking expression uniquely and powerfully for you and I and through you and I. And so I just give thanks this day, knowing every good thing is here now. I give thanks for the prayers that are being, a consciousness that is being held by our practitioners right now as we come together in conversation in music and celebration. I'm grateful for music. I'm grateful for silence. I'm grateful for mentors, teachers, coaches, and inspirations. And to be able to hang on to their coattails at times. To stand together in the truth of our being, the true essence of our being. For this I give thanks. I release these words knowing everything is in divine right order for each and every one of us because this is the agreement I strike with that higher wisdom self that lives within myself. And I thank you for your agreement as I know this for you as well. Together we say, and so it is. Poet David White always, uh, uh, I've got a, I shouldn't say always, but I've got a video of his, so it seems always, because every time I watch it, he always says the same thing. Isn't that amazing how a video will do that? But he always talks about James Cavanaugh, this great old Irish um, poet. And he said Cavanaugh was penniless. He would walk in around these old boots and with holes in them and the same clothes for years and years and years. But he would always get up every day and he'd say, me, I throw away sufficient to the day. Because, and what he was affirming was, I have everything I need in this moment. Today I have enough. And so I can be about the business of being that creative portal, that, that creative 
presence upon the planet. And so he'd wander the hills and the countrysides and he would write his poetry. But fascinating, isn't one to get up in the morning and say, me, I throw away sufficient to the day. I got all my needs met. I love that. Because there's a greater yet to be. So we're talking about this amazing book, this undefended love. Holy moly. I haven't looked at this book in probably 10 years. And, um, uh, but I, I revisited it. And it's such a, a rich and an amazing uh, compilation of, of information and insight into, I think, things that are, are really powerfully aligned with express, expressing one's spiritual beauty and spiritual essence. He's really interested. Look at this young guy. He's leaning in with both hands under his chin. This is great. So anyway, let me talk to you here. This is great. I'm not used to such a captive audience. Anyway, um, but planting the seeds of love is, is our, our idea this month. And we've been, we're talking about the, the planting of different qualities as gardeners of our own garden of consciousness and our true essence. There's a wonderful, um, we've, there's so many wonderful artists that have gone before that we can use as inspiration. I think we can all be artists, that we all are artists. Uh, Martha Graham was an amazing uh, choreographer. She developed what we now know as modern dance. And she began doing this work in the 1930s especially, and she moved into a theater in New York City, and she devoted her whole life to, to dance. And later in her career, where she couldn't dance anymore, but she was still choreographing and, and doing things, a friend of hers came to her that had won an award for um, a, a Tony Award for her play on Broadway. And she said, you know, this really troubles me because I don't think this is my best work. My best work, there's a lot of other things I've done that's my best work. But this is, I'm being acknowledged for this. So she said it's creating this sense of I can't trust my own sensibilities because this, this work over here I know is much better, but yet I've received a Tony for this one. And Martha Graham looked at her and said, look, as an artist, as a creative individual, you're never going to be satisfied, ever. So don't worry about that. Just continue to create and give your gifts. And what great insight and awareness for a woman that kept presenting and presenting and helping people into these uh, um, the various uh, forms of movement. She also talked about at one point in her life, she, came, she was madly in love with her husband. They danced together and they did all, the, they did all this beautiful work together and he passed away. And so she went into a depression, she attempted suicide, uh, and, and about 72, when she was 72, she finally rebounded and she came back and got busy again. She'd done her grieving and the, the sorrow. She said there was nothing more painful for her than watching dances that she and her husband had choreographed, watching from the wings as other young artists that were dressed as she was dressed 30 years earlier with her beloved would perform. And she said it was such a, it was such a bittersweet experience. But at that point in, in, in time when her friend came to her and said, how should I filter this, um, this experience of I've created so much and yet this piece is being acknowledged when I think this piece is so much more beautiful. And she said, there's a vitality, this is Martha Graham, there's a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost, and the world will not have it. And I think that is so true. I think that's one of the tragedies of life, that we have opportunities, that all of us have this divine essence It's unique, that you know, we'll never have this moment. When Martin was singing that beautiful song this morning, um, I thought, we'll never have this moment again. 
And so rather than spin into what, what might not ever re- reoccur, but to celebrate the moment, to be fully present with it, go, oh, this is so beautiful. So what I can do is I can choose within my own perception how I receive that beautiful gift of music and to allow it to inspire me, or it can be a cause for failure because it's temporary, when in fact that's what great art is. Nothing lasts forever. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And Martha Graham knew that, but what's so important, I believe, is that this infinite divine presence that is a principle is always seeking a greater yet to be. It's my new favorite phrase this week, greater yet to be. And so in this, um, this few pages that I, because this work, this undefended love, is such a rich and deep and, and amazing book with powerful insights, they talk in there about perceiving our essence. So to perceive our essence, what we're invited to do, number one, is to quiet our minds. It's not done with, with clamoring and striving and effort. It's quieting our minds and presencing ourselves. It also requires opening our heart. If you notice that many times in our, in our opening prayer, I will invite you to imagine your heart breathing. When we breathe from the heart, we, we activate an intelligence that, that, is, uh, that is so beautiful and powerful, and as well as with our intuition, our core. So it's not just the head stuff. It's moving from the head to the heart to the core. To the, Eventually, the, there'll be, there's a mosaic of information that, that filters into our awareness. That's what awareness is about because we're aware of all of it, not just one aspect of our, our processing. To relax the tension in our bodies, once again through the breath, through opening our hearts, and then relaxing the resistance to our feelings. And they're so simple, simple practices, aren't they? And yet, there are things that for me, I came to later in life. These are not things that I was nurtured with, didn't have people around me modeling this because it didn't seem like it had any intrinsic value. So here's a picture of me as a young boy when I lived as a Buddhist monk. <laughs> I love that picture, that little guy. I just think that's awesome. He's, he's there, man. He's doing it. He's quieting his mind and relaxing his body and opening his heart. And At least that's the story I make up about him. But it's such a beautiful, beautiful practice that seems so, in, for many in the West, it would seem sort of pointless. What uh, in... Uh, Undefended Love, the ladies write, there are two ladies that wrote this beautiful book, we would rather feel hurt or self-righteous than face and work with our own unconscious and painful misidentities. It's much easier to be self-righteous and to blame others and to shame others and to, and, and, or to feel hurt. I'm hurt and I'm done. I'm going home. Don't call me anymore. And so it's, 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 it's not that that's a a horrible thing. It's just not a very efficient thing. But that was sort of how I was domesticated. My mother could give you the silent treatment for months. That was, her, that, was, that was one of her forms of punishment. She would just withdraw and disappear. And there were 11 of us, so she, she was always busy with somebody else anyway. And I'd wander out into the woods and play and make stuff up. And, but, I mean, it was just very interesting. Because, and and, and what, I'll t- what I know about all this, and I and love my mom, um, because I know what parents do. They give you everything they got, but they can only give you what they have. And unless we wake up and, and transform the old patterns, we just transmit it. So the next generation comes along and goes, here, here's what I got. Here, there you go. And, and I think it's our responsibility to sort of look at our, our, how we operate and question it. So I want to share with you some of the things that... Um, and the next slide, we would rather accuse our partners of always wanting things their way. Anybody ever had that experience in relationship? 
my partner always wants things their way, or they want too much. Instead of facing the feeling of inadequacy that gets stimulated in reaction to their wanting more. So whenever we're in relationship, I, it, listen, I know this stuff, whenever, and I get triggered, it has very little to do with, with my partner. It has everything to do with how I was domesticated. There's a wonderful a piece in here called, um, I'll think of it in a moment, but I'll describe the piece to you, of how our parents, my, uh, and I could really relate to my mom, is that, that there was um, a sense of sorrow that she had. She was overwhelmed, and God love her, I know she was. And this sorrow and burden and, and frustration and anger. And so she would at times just sort of break out into tears. And I'd be, I don't know, I'd be, from the time I was little until, you know, I was, she would, you know, we'd go somewhere, mom would be the chauffeur, and she'd be crying. And so as a little kid, I wanted to help her, because you love your mom, she's your mom. And so but what would happen is that wouldn't seem to make any difference. And so the message that I internalized with that was I would just feel like I'm inadequate. I can't do anything. I'm useless. Here's this woman that I adore and love, and, and, you know, and, I, and I can't fix it. And so that theme, it wasn't intended, intentional on her part, but I'm just giving you an example of how when we process things, especially as children, that was something that really was inappropriate for me to carry. But there were none of these books around at that point in time, man. You know, all this, we are so abundantly blessed with information and insight to be able to step into this and look at the patterns in our lives and to either dissolve them or to shift them or change them or, or continue to live that way, but at least we know one way or another. We don't have to be on the spiritual path. We don't have to buy into evolution and a greater, a greater yet to be. That's a choice, just like, just like any other choice we make. I just think it's, it's, it's crucial that we do. I think the most important thing that we can do on this beautiful planet right now is transform consciousness and then take it into the world. So, what they talk about in the book as well as the defended or transparent personality. And so, do we have some of these patterns locked in the ways we do things and defend ourselves, like, you know, blaming the other, they want too much, they're the issue, it's not me, on and on and on, or a transparent personality. So they talk in this book about emotional presence. An emotional presence is the capacity to be non-judgmental and motiveless when listening or simply being with another. I would say that when you, when you sit with one of our practitioners or you sit with a great counselor or, or someone that can witness what's going on with you without a motive but just let things bubble up. Because as Mary Baker Eddy said, I talked about her last week, uh, an error revealed is two-thirds healed. And I believe our subconscious is so finely tuned that when we bring things into the light of awareness, it's already starting to dissipate. That's why when we share, many times it lifts us for us. Our parents, if our parents had been able to give us the space and time to feel what we were feeling without trying to change it, fix it, or control us, our emotional disturbance would eventually have cleared and we would have reconnected with our essence. But isn't it interesting, like when I was growing up, you weren't allowed to have a feeling. Crying? You keep that up, I'll give you something to cry about. That was a, you know, that, they played that record at my house a lot. There's a wonderful book called The Boys in the Boat. And it's a story of eight rowers. I said nine at the first service, but there's a coxman there that does that, you know, stroke, stroke, stroke. Okay. They're in the, the long uh, boat, a skull is it called? But they row, and it's the story of Joe Rance, and, he, Joe Rance and, and seven other boys. It's an amazing story on teamwork. The power of a team rowing together and, and what can happen. And I'm only at page 375. I don't know how it ends, but I do know they win the gold medal. But I'm still reading it because it's a fascinating story. But Joe 
was raised, uh, his father was sort of a tinkerer and he traveled all over the, the Pacific Northwest fixing machinery. He worked in a, log, in a mining camp and he worked all over for different things and he could fix machinery. He was very capable. And his wife passed, Joe's mom passed away and he remarried another woman, stepmom. And the stepmom absolutely hated Joe. Joe was a, a, a reminder of the first wife and the, the, the other life. And so Joe was sort of on the outskirts of this whole family. And, and as a young boy, he was shipped off to stay with, uh, when the mom died, he was shipped off for a year to the east coast of the U.S. He lived there with an aunt and an uncle. Came back when his father remarried. And then they lived up in the mountains at this mining camp. And it's, a, it's an amazing story. But anyway, so Joe is in grade 10. And I think that's probably about uh, 13 years old, something like that. 15? Okay, let's go with 15. All right. I was, I was 12 in grade 10 because I was so smart. They just kept pushing me forward is all I'm saying. So you have to help me out. I wish that were true. Anyway, no, I was right where I needed to be with my pals. But anyway, so, Joe's, Joe, so dad finally moves to Squim, Washington, which is west of Seattle and slightly north on the way to Port Angeles. And the family was there, and they started building a home, and, they, and, they, and so they, you know, they, building a home, you, you cut down your own tree, and you made your own lumber, and they get the house halfway done, and Joe was going to school, and he comes home from school one day, and the dad's got the car par- uh, packed up, and he says, uh, and the depression was going on, so the depression had hit, and, and things were happening, like people were abandoning them, their homesteads, and so they would leave their dogs, and the dogs became these wild packs of dogs, and they would torment the, the cows, and, and create, create trauma there, and and uh, there were uh, all kinds of things happening around the environment. They were raising chickens. They had 400 chickens at one time. And then, then the mink got into the chickens and killed most of them. And so all the things that they were subsisting on were starting to disappear. And it was tough to make a living. There weren't a whole lot of jobs. So Joe comes home from school one day, and he's 15 years old. And his dad says, uh, the car's pa- packed. And he says, where are we going, Dad? And his dad said, Joe, we can't make it here. And he said, you're here, you're going to stay here, you're on your own. And so it's his story of the abandonment. So he said it was five minutes. His whole life changed in five minutes. He got in, packed, and his dad and his stepmom drove away with the four other kids. And the two stepbrothers looking out the back window at Joe. And so it's, it's Joe's story about, um, he's one of the main protagonists in the story of these, the boys in the boat, of how they came together and created this family unit, and they created this, this camaraderie that went beyond just an athletic event. It's a beautiful story. But, you know, I mean, Joe didn't get a whole lot of anyone in this emotional, emotional presencing is one of the first things that's very important for us to be able to, to, to be with one another and presence what's happening without trying to control it or fix it or, or make you feel wrong because you're having an experience. And as it says, we would eventually clear and reconnect with our essence if we're allowed that. But we're uncomfortable with that. At least the people that I was around when I was being nurtured were uncomfortable with that. And the next piece of it is reassurance. Because as a kid, when you slip into depression or fear or anger, you don't know what's going to stop. I mean, this is like a new way of being. And he talks about, the ladies talk about an undefended love, how it's important to have somebody there, standing there with you saying there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. Otherwise, we just lose our minds. Am I always going to feel this way? Am I always going to take this on as a way of being? And then mirroring. They talk about the power of mirroring. So when you, with a baby, if the baby smiles and you smile back, or the baby's frowning and you frown back, what is, is acknowledgement that I see you? The power of mirroring. 
so that there's a connection. They realize, and, and how they feel is acknowledged. So when someone says, I'm angry, a child says, I'm angry. We were never allowed to say anything like that, but when a child does say, I'm angry, rather than, than try and squash it or make it bad and wrong, but say, wow, look at the courage you have to, to share how you feel right now. I mean, all those little pieces that I don't think, I wasn't, I wasn't equipped as a parent. I wish I'd had this you know, 30 years ago when I was, had little, little ones. But I was, still, I was still dissolving a lot of the, the gifts that mom and dad gave me because that's how they survived. And then external support, going through these challenges to have external support in our lives, to have someone there that can witness what's bubbling up. And that's why when we work with practitioners, when we do counseling, it's like, what's alive in you? Because we all have longings. Our essence wants to be expressed. We all have longings. So if, if I can say an affirmative prayer or I can create a spiritual prototype to have an experience and then I'm not having it, well, there's probably something restricting that. It's not that I'm being, that there's an arbitrary God that says you can't have that. You're bad and wrong. But what it is is that own, our own interior um, consciousness and way of being and our attitudes that in some way are restricting a greater expression, the greater yet to be. Well, that's good news because then we know where we can put some of our energy and ask some questions. And if we can relax in it and we can have an open heart and understand that we haven't done anything wrong, we've just simply got some misidentity, some error beliefs that are our are, are opportunity to bring mastery to. I mean, isn't it interesting? I mean, the theme is the same for all of us. And I really believe it's one of the ways as, as individualized expressions of the infinite that we, as we bring awareness to it and we work through it and move through it, life is transformed because we're transformed, because we're the thing itself. And we are so uniquely important, we will never have this moment again, each and every one of us. And so when we get more and more of that, then, it's, then we can put down these misidentities of not being enough. With my mom, I, mean, I share that theme with you because I just felt helpless and useless. I couldn't help her at all. And it was the most important thing to me in the world. But I was not equipped for that. And she wasn't equipped for it. You know, she wasn't nurtured in that way. You know, we have so much more available to us now in terms of insight and awareness and allowing people to have their own experience, even our children. Jean Klein wrote The Ease of Being, said the real personality is fluid, subtle, and comes up to meet each situation in a new way appropriate to the moment. What's appropriate in the moment? What's, what's, you know, what is the appropriate response here and now? Not, the, not all that pent-up feeling I have that I, I'm dragging with me. And then, you know, my dad was great at this. He would sandbag. He would sandbag. He would stuff it and stuff it and stuff. And then he would just explode. And then we would duck for cover. That was his, that was his coping mechanism. And so while he was doing his thing, we would do everything we could to preserve our safety. And I don't think that's uncommon. You know, and sometimes it's just an emotional but, um, but to watch that and, and watch that, that frustration that, that he felt. There's a wonderful poem by Mary Oliver. I'm always fascinated. Like, how do you go to your parents and say, you know, I've decided, I know what I'm going to be. I know my career path. Oh, what's that? I'm going to be a poet. Oh, really? Where do you go apply for a job as a poet? Anybody know? I mean, when we, have, we have all this beautiful poetry. We have all these beautiful songs that people write. And, and, and what inspires us? I believe it's that connecting with that essence and realizing there's a greater yet to be and sharing that, as Martha Graham did. But Mary Oliver wrote this book on, on dying, uh, this, this uh, poem on dying. And she begins it by talking about the very aspects of death. 
And then she, she takes a left-hand turn and says, and therefore I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And she's speaking the language of oneness, that we're all in this together. There's no uniqueness about our individuality in a sense, although it's, it's perfect and it is unique, but we're all connected at some level. And all the mystics have taught that. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. That's sweet. Eternity is another possibility, not a disaster, not a, not a failure. That's another opportunity. Even Alexander last month, proof of heaven, talked about that. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does, does towards silence. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. And when it's over, I want to say, I was a bridemaid to amazement. I was a bridegroom taking the world into my arms. And when it's over, I don't want to wonder if I had made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing or frightened or full of argument. I, want to end up, I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. I think it's so beautiful when Ernest Holmes talks about what's important is that while we live, we live fully. That we're here to express life. That our divine essence is unique. And as, as Martha Graham said, you don't express it, it goes on the scrap heap. It, it will, will be lost forever. And so I love that idea. I love about collaboration with the infinite divine presence moving us forward. So per, per, perceiving our essence, quieting our minds, opening our hearts. My mom used to have a picture of Jesus in the front hall, and it was a picture of the, the radiant heart with his hands out like that, the open heart. Relaxing the tension in our bodies and relax the resistance to our feelings so we can be present with one another. The last slide I want to share with you is a picture that reminded me of my childhood. We had a, a neighbor. We lived out in the country most of the time. Now it's all houses. But he used to have farms around us. And there was an old guy that lived down the street, George, George Mosher. And George had a little house and he had a little, you know, piece of land that he would farm on. And he had a rope. I was always fascinated. I always go over there because he, he pumped his water from a, a hand pump. And he had a rope from the house to the outhouse because there was no indoor plumbing. And I used to say to him, well, why do you have that rope? And, he, and it was Minnesota and believe it or not, it gets snowy there and everything cold just like here. And, and, you know, we need to celebrate because we only got about 45 days left of this really miserable cold weather, and I'm pretty excited. I'm going to make the best of it, huh? We're on the other side of it now, yeah. thought about that the other day as I was putting on my third pair of socks and going out to see if my car would start. But George, he had this rope from the house to the, the outhouse. And I, finally one day I said to him, because they had hang clothes on it too, but he had a clothesline as well. And I said, what's up with the rope from the house, the front door to the outhouse? He said, well, when it's blowing really bad, when it's really snowing, I want to find my way back home. So he would hold the rope and he would walk out there. And probably a lot of you that grew up on farms and acreages had maybe the same thing. But, you know, sometimes when it's blowing, you don't know where you are. And so that was George's way to get back home. And I think it's important, it's such a wonderful me metaphor to, to know that our way back home to our true essence is by quieting the mind, by opening our hearts. Buy in a, well, this is the rope. This is a rope, Wendy. Rope's a metaphor. Wendy said, and buy a rope. You could buy a rope if you want. In fact, I'll be selling ropes next Sunday. They're special ropes. I'm shipping them in. They're $10,000 a piece. 
but all we have to do is sell a couple of them and we'll start our building fund. Yeah. But it is the metaphor. And I think, I think grounding ourselves in the truth of our being is the rope back. It is the way there. So let's ground this talk and this knowing. Let's share a prayer. And then we'll bring that beautiful Martin Kerr back up to sing for us. So what I know in this moment is I bless this moment. I just give thanks for the, the insight and the awareness, knowing something deep and powerful is moving in and, in and through each and every one of us. As we take the, the consciousness expressed today and witness and listen deeply, relax into our feeling nature and bringing our awareness to what is bubbling up for us. To bless and honor the legacy and all those that did everything they could, gave us everything they have so we can be here together today. But also knowing there's a greater yet to be. And part of the way we bless their legacy is to give birth to that. That you and I each have a unique and amazing gift to share. And if we do not share it, if it has no space to be revealed, it is lost forever. So I just give thanks for these reminders for these two beautiful women that wrote this beautiful book. We also, as our ushers come forward, give thanks as we prepare to share. Let us share, you and I, from that sense of gratitude and appreciation for that which we appreciate, appreciates. And so I know as we come together in that this day, our lives continue to expand and express and bless our lives and the lives of those around us. For this I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is.